Let's pray together once again. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, as we come to this portion of our worship service, we have already sung of your greatness, of your love and your mercy, of our need for you. We've given of our tithes and our offerings and our special offerings, Lord. We come to this point in our service that we might worship you through the reading, through the teaching, through the proclamation of your holy word. Father, it's, it's not about me. It's not about a message that I have prepared. And Father, if that's what comes forward, you and I both know, Lord, that that's not going to help anybody. So, Lord, what, what we all ask together this morning is that you might move me out of your way, that you might hide me behind your cross, Lord Jesus, and that you would speak to all of us as we sit at your throne and seek, as humbly as we know how, to listen to your perfect word, to listen to your spirit as you speak through your perfect word. Lord, we ask that you would move now and that you would add your blessing to the reading, to the teaching, to the proclamation of your perfect word. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, and I hope that you do, I encourage you to take it and turn with me once again to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. We're going to continue this morning our sermon series, walking through the Beatitudes, one Beatitude at the time. So I'll be reading for us this morning from chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. If you didn't happen to bring a Bible with you this morning, feel free to borrow one from the back of the pew there in front of you. If you don't own your own copy of God's Word, please feel free to take one of those from the back of the pew in front of you as our gift to you. But regardless of if you're accessing the Word of the Lord in a digital format or in print, or if you're following along on the screens, I would ask, if you're physically able, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's Holy Word? We look together now at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, going through verse 12. I'll read for us when I have completed. I'll say this is the Word of the Lord, and I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the Word of the Lord tells us, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Once again, verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we return to this 
incredibly famous sermon that Jesus preaches, probably one of the most, if not the most famous sermon that is ever preached. Jesus goes up on the side of the mountain there near Capernaum by the Sea of Galilee. It's a a very tall hillside. The acoustics are absolutely perfect so that Jesus can speak and everyone gathered around can hear. Notice that it says his disciples came to him. That's not just the 12 apostles, but that's all of those who were following him. And there were crowds thronged about him as well. There are thousands of people lined up to hear this sermon. And Jesus begins and he opens his mouth and starts to teach. And so the rest of this big sermon that we're going to hear, which is one of five big discourses that we have in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew, remember, is writing to an audience that thinks Moses is the end-all, be-all of God's revelation to humanity. And so they're trying to, Matthew is thematically gathering these things together, trying to present Jesus as the prophet that was coming that Moses told about. So he breaks up, like Moses had the five books of the law, he breaks up the five major discourses of Jesus into five sermons, and this is the first, starting in chapter 5, going through chapter 7. And so what Jesus is trying to do with this sermon is punch people in the mouth. Now, not literally or, or, or absolutely not in a physical sense, but he wants to knock them off their feet. He wants them to be off balance for the rest of the sermon. That's why he starts with this word, blessed. The reason this is referred to as the Beatitudes is because that word, blessed or blessed, in Latin is beatus. And so that's where we get Beatitudes, okay? So we have these Beatitudes and we start with these blessings. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, there's so many different translations of this word blessed. It can mean blissful. It can mean fortunate. It can mean favored by God. It can mean happy. It can mean joyful. Okay, so there's a lot of interpretations. But but I want us to see that Jesus could be heard by his audience as starting his sermon by saying, fortunate are the poor, happy are the sad. You see how controversial and upside down and backwards that sounds if you came all the way to hear this really incredible Jesus guy and he starts off by telling you that those who are fortunate are actually poor in spirit. Those who are happy are actually those who are sad. And so right off the bat, Jesus is trying to get our attention and orient us that these are spiritual and theological truths. This is not necessarily meant to mimic the physical world or material things. These are theological things that he is teaching us. He starts off in this way because he's about to go through the various Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you've heard that it was said that if you have an affair and are intimate with someone who is not your spouse, that you have committed adultery. But I say to you, if you look on someone with lust in your heart and in your eyes, then you have already committed that sin. If you, you've heard that it said, do not commit murder, but I say to you, if you look with malice and hatred in your heart towards your brother, your sister, then you have committed murder. He's taking these physical things and making them a heart issue. In the same way, the Beatitudes, he's making us realize that blessedness is a condition of the heart. What we talked about last week is that Those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven, 
this very unique phrase that only Matthew uses. The other gospel writers always, always say kingdom of God. Matthew's the one who says the kingdom of heaven. And so he says those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven are those who realize we have nothing spiritually to offer God. That we are poor and impoverished and bankrupt spiritually. Then he continues and says that this blessedness, this heart condition of being blessed, is that those who mourn will be comforted. It's very strange, though. Is Jesus just talking about all mourning? Again, we're not focusing on the physical, obvious manifestation of what this could mean, but we're talking about a spiritual reality. So what kind of mourning is Jesus talking about? What kind of sadness or weeping is Jesus specifically referring to? Do you think that those who lose loved ones, someone passes away in your family, somebody that's very close to you, that's a good, lifelong friend, passes away and you grieve and you mourn their loss? Is Jesus saying that in those moments, that's when you are truly fortunate, blissful, happy, favored by God? Is, is, is that what Jesus means to communicate? Can you imagine hearing Jesus fire these off rapid fire and them not making any sense whatsoever? We have all of this time this morning to dissect each one of these phrases. But Jesus didn't pause. He just said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. So how many people do you think left Jesus's sermon and on first blush, they thought, huh, well, I guess every time something bad happens in my life and I go into mourning, I should just count myself blessed. That's not what Jesus meant. Jesus is talking about a specific, a specific spiritual kind of mourning. And it's a mourning that's kind of foreign to you and I, especially today in our modern context. Jesus is talking about a kind of mourning that happens and takes place over our sin, over how we have betrayed God, over how we have turned our back completely on the Father, how everything within us longs to do what is evil and desires to do what is opposed to the will of God. Even Paul writes about it in Romans chapter 7. It's one of the most confusing passages, right? He says, the things that I want to do are the very things that I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do are the very things that I end up doing. Woe is me. There's this battle that goes on in our souls with sin. And when we sin, it should cause us to grieve. It should cause us to mourn that we have betrayed our Father in heaven. Now, I I don't know about you guys, but I I grew up with incredible parents. And I'm blessed that they're still with me today. I feel blissful and happy and fortunate that my parents are still alive. And they always gave me what they believed was the best advice or counsel or guidance that they could give me, given the information that they had at the time. And that's all we can hope for from our parents, right? None of us are perfect parents. None of us have perfect parents. But those of us who truly love and cherish our relationship with our mother and our father are those of us who know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, That everything our mother and father did, they were trying to do for what they perceived was in our best interest. 
And my parents could do a lot of things to punish me, and they did. My parents could punish me in a variety of ways, but nothing ever hurt quite as much as when my dad would sit me down and look across at me eye to eye, and he'd say, son, I understand, but I'm just very disappointed in you. I just expected more out of you. This just hurts my heart, and I'm, I'm just discouraged that these are the choices that you made. Now, maybe for you it wasn't your mom or your dad. Maybe for you there was another mentor in your life, a big brother, a big sister, a close friend, somebody that you had that special, close, parent-like relationship. And it was a bomb dropped on your soul when they looked in your eyes and said they were disappointed in you, that they expected more from you. Nothing caused me to grieve or mourn quite like that. I would take a spanking, a timeout, a a whatever, ground me, take my keys, do whatever you need to do, but don't tell me that I've let you down and you are severely disappointed in me as your son because I love my father, I love my mother, I want to honor them. And I wonder if we ever apply that same attitude towards our sin against God. That the God of the universe is the one that we are sinning against. And we betray Him. But does our sin cause us to mourn? Because those who mourn over their sin are blessed, are blissful, are happy. Those who mourn over their sin are fortunate, are favored by God, are loved by the Father. And those who mourn their sin will find comfort. Paul tells us more about this sin and and grieving about this sin. We looked at this not too long ago in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he has written them a letter where he is absolutely scathing them and scolding them and reprimanding them for how terribly they have followed his instructions and wandered from the truth. And so he just calls the spade the spade, right? He just says, here's how you guys are failing. Here's where it's all falling apart. This is what's going on. But it kind of made Paul feel like, oh, man, that was was really harsh. You know, that was really hard for them to read. And so this is him coping with how they responded to his letter, and how hard and harsh that letter was. Verse 9, as it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. Blessed are those who are grieved into repentance. Blessed are those who mourn their sin, and it causes us to repent and turn from our sin. For you felt a godly grief. A grief that is from God, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, in verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. There there is a grief that is of this world. Remember, if you can, what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. We studied 1 Thessalonians not too long ago, all right? Think back with me. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, so that you might not grieve as those who have no hope. Worldly grief 
leads to death and despair and depression. That cycle of constant depression that never breaks the darkness that closes in around you and you see no sunlight. There is no light at the end of your tunnel. That is worldly grief. But the reason that people who are blessed, people are blessed who mourn is because they're mourning their sin. And that kind of grief, that kind of mourning is godly grief that has hope at the end of it. When we are grieved by our sin, when we mourn our sin, then we are led to repentance. It leads us away from those actions that are causing that grief. There is light at the end of the tunnel. It's incredible that God provides this light at the end of the tunnel. That there is comfort. And you know what's strange? Is that God's the one that ends up comforting us in our mourning over our sin. Have you ever thought about this? When you and I mourn our sin, when we are grieved over our sin against God, we've done wrong by God, God is the one who has to come and comfort us. The very one who's been wronged. The very one who should be angry with us. The very one who should be calling down lightning and fire from heaven upon our heads because we deserve it. He's the one who has to turn around and come and comfort us. Now, if you've ever been in a parenting relationship with a child, then you know at some point in time you have to discipline that child. And it is so incredible that God teaches us so much through parenting. Because God is the one who comforts us, but how often is it that we discipline our children and then we have to turn around and comfort them? Just the other day at a restaurant, Lily was really, really acting out. And so I warned her. I warned her again, and I gave her the third warning, and I said, Lily, if you do this again, you're going to get a spanking. And so then, she did it again. And I looked at Jessica, and she looked at me, and she said, you're the one that said it. I said, you are correct. I I did say it. And so I had to take her to the restroom. And now when I say spanking, I I mean, I I popped her honey two times, and that was it. And it, it wasn't enough to hurt her, but to hurt her feelings. And buddy, she just... I exploded into crying. Everybody in the restaurant's now looking at me. Who's this terrible father? What's going on? Well, now that she's crying, what am I supposed to do? Just leave her in the restroom? What do I do? Just just leave a little little baby girl in the restroom, just bawling her eyes out. I'm gonna spank you, and I'm I, you've disobeyed, and now you get your punishment. Deal with it. No, I'm her dad. She's upset. I pick her up, and I have to comfort her and take her back to the table. Sit down at the table with her. Remind her that I still love her. Remind her that that punishment is not forever and that it's going to be okay, that I'm still her dad and I still love her. I have to win her heart back because that punishment hurts and she's mourning and grieving in her own way. That's what God does for us. Isn't it incredible that we deserve the punishment? We deserve to feel terrible. We deserve to be mourning and grieving, but He doesn't leave us there. He's the perfect father. He comes and he scoops us up in his arms and he provides comfort. So when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, that's what he means. It's proven even there in Isaiah chapter 40. Look with me in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. He uses this same word. And if you look, this is the same exact word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament as what you see in the Beatitudes. Comfort. Comfort my people. Says your God, 
Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Look at this next line. That her iniquity is pardoned. Let's just rephrase that a little bit. It's going to mean the exact same thing, okay? Let's just call this the Nathan's Bethany version, okay? Because it's not international, all right? It's, It's not going around the world. But that her sin is forgiven. Let Israel know there's comfort because her sin is forgiven. And and do you know who the true Israel is? It's not those who are biologically bloodline related to Abraham. It's those who have the same fate that Abraham had, where he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's the true Israel. That's the true church. So when God pronounces through the prophet Isaiah, comfort, comfort to my people, That can easily be applied to you and to me. There is comfort because there is forgiveness for our sins. We can find comfort in our mourning because God forgives us from our sin. And I just, I just want to put this question to us this morning. All right. I won't beat a dead horse any, any further. When is the last time we have mourned over our sin? Or mourned over the sin around us. And I don't mean get angry. I don't mean turn on Fox News and be like, I can't believe that this world's doing, ah! You know, I mean, I'm not talking about rants and raves or getting on Facebook and venting and saying, oh, I can't believe that all this is going on in our society today. Ah. I'm not, that's not mourning. That's not grieving, okay? When have we been brought to tears? Because of the sin that we see around us. When have we been brought to tears because of the sin in our own heart? Look at what the psalmist says. Psalm 119. Verse 136 of Psalm 119. The psalmist says, My eyes shed streams of tears. Is it because they're going through a hard time in life? Is it because somebody just passed away? Is it because they were punched in the face? No. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. This is why the psalmist weeps and mourns, because there is sin in the world and because of our own sin. James chapter 4, this is our imperative to be mournful and grieve over our sin. James says, picking up about halfway through verse 8 in chapter 4, cleanse your hands You sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. When Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall receive comfort. He's talking about when we mourn our sins, And we are comforted by the fact that Jesus died for our sins. He took the punishment and the penalty that we deserve on the cross. And there is forgiveness for our sins, which should bring us unending comfort. That we don't have to spend eternity separated from God. But our sins should still break our hearts. Our sins should still stop us in our tracks sometimes. And take away the smiles and the laughter. And we should be brought to our knees in despair. 
and realize how great our God is, that He would offer forgiveness to a sinner like me, to a sinner like you. That's how wonderful and comforting our God is. And and I just want to close this sermon by by reading a, a prayer. Okay? This is David's prayer. We read this almost every time that we take communion. It's Psalm 51. This is... This is what David penned after he was caught in the midst of several scandalous sins. Adultery could almost be categorized as worse than adultery because Bathsheba had very little say in doing or not doing what the king demanded. Murder, plot, conspiracy to murder. When God calls him out on his sin, this is how David grieves and mourns his sin. This is why David is called a man after God's own heart. And I want to read this to us. And as I read it over each and every one of you, I just want us to contemplate and to think, have we ever, at any point in our lives, mourned our sin the way David mourns his sin here in Psalm 51? He pleads with the Lord, says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. When was the last time any of us genuinely prayed like this to God? And even more importantly than that, have you ever prayed like this to God? There is comfort and forgiveness and life everlasting to be found at the cross of Jesus Christ. But to receive that blessing, to be blessed like that, we have to grieve like this. And then even after we trust in Jesus, We still battle with our sin daily, right? As we struggle and battle against our sin, let us be known as a church that repents like David repented. That we have godly grief that leads us to the repentance and hope of the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that even though we are the ones who have sinned against you, That, Lord, You provide comfort and hope 
Thank you for providing comfort to us, your people. Thank you for providing the sacrifice to cover our sins, to wash us whiter than snow. Lord, help us to be in that category of those who are blessed because we mourn over the things that we do to betray who you are and your character and your nature and your law. Lord, would you provide comfort through Jesus to remind us that there is forgiveness at the cross. Lord, maybe today someone needs to just spend this next few moments praying and asking for that comfort. Father, maybe somebody needs to come and pray and grieve over their sin for the very first time. Regardless, Lord, thank You that You are waiting with open arms to provide us with reassurance because You are the way, You are the truth, You are the life. And if we call to You, Lord Jesus, we can and will be saved. Father, we ask all these things in the name of You, our great Father in heaven, through the power of Your Holy Spirit, by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior.